Hello America, I'm Becca and this is Cole and we're going to tell you everything that you need to know about the Native American genocide and the Native American boarding schools. We want to put a disclaimer because some of the content is very intense and may be upsetting to some. When we get further into detail on the personal encounters, we will do another disclaimer to give you a heads up. Thank you. Along with explaining how the Native American genocide affected the Native Americans, we're also focusing on one person named Dr. Denise Lajmadir and her Ojibwa Native American tribe. She teaches and now is a professor at the University of North Dakota. She will now be, we will now be talking about how she was affected growing up with parents who were in boarding schools, as well as how boarding schools treated and affected her parents. So we aren't going too far into the history of everything leading back to the Native American genocide and boarding schools, but we will talk about the main points leading up to it. So when Cortez came to America and Mexico, he slaughtered millions of indigenous people and burned down towns and villages. He was one of the most known people who brought destruction to the Native Americans. With the European expansion and others like the conquistadors going to America and trying to colonize Native America, Native Americans, there were many wars as well as things explorers tried to do to get rid of them, such as use blankets and other supplies to try to harm the Native Americans with diseases and other things. So once more people started to come to America and as time progressed, these people wanted to move westwards and grow in other areas than where they were in the east. So this was known as the westward expansion. With every cause, there is an effect. Because the settlers wanted to move west, they had problems with the Native Americans that were already living there in the areas. Which brings us to the Native American genocide and all that came along with it as well as our survivor, Dr. Denise Lashamdeer, and how she was affected. So when the settlers moved westward and started to have several encounters and experiences with the natives, one of the first acts was passed in 1819 called the Indian Civilization Act. This act encouraged practices and educations, such as boarding schools, to help the quote-unquote civilization process of natives in the country. This act was proposed and passed by the United States Congress. President Grant, who was president at the time, also proposed and passed a peace policy. This policy was supposed to remove corrupt American Indian agents on the reservations and replace them with missionaries to try to convert the natives to Christianity. In total, all the wars fought between the natives and settlers happened between 1622 and 1924. President Grant thought that by having boarding schools, children would be able to learn Christianity and the first boarding school was created by a man named Richard Pratt. Pratt was in the army and fought in several wars, and he now wanted to open up and run a boarding school. His motto was kill the man, or kill the Indian, save the man. The boarding school opened in 1879 in Pennsylvania and was called the boarding school at Carlisle. The second one was opened by Pratt's friend, Captain M.C. Wilkerson in 1880 in Salem, Oregon. The second boarding school was called Chimwa Boarding School. Ironically, Wilkerson was killed in a Native American battle at, against the Ojawa people and the tribe that our doc, the tribe Dr. Lajmandir came from. Dr. Lajmandir's parents were taken as children and placed in boarding schools. She has done extensive and difficult research about these boarding schools. So far, she has found that there are 359 boarding schools all over America, and there are still many more that people don't know about. These schools were anything but educational. The children were recommended that 
they should stay through eighth grade, but they were not educated after that. The natives rarely had any classes at all while they were there. They would be forced to do laborious chores, live in unclean, hostile situations, and very few of the billions that were taken actually survived. The children were taken to these, quote, schools and taught to forget their ways of tribal life. Dr. Lajwandir's father was taken at a very young age. The people came and took him, and it took them three days and three nights to get him to his boarding school. The natives were slapped if they spoke their native language. They were given military-style uniforms and lace-up boots to wear while they were there. When they did get to these boarding schools, the nuns and matrons would cut their braids and hair, and they would burn them. That was very humiliating for them, and they took a lot of pride in their hair. So once they did that, they would be debugged by them, and this was done by dusting them in a room with no windows or ventilation. And Dr. Lajmadir later found out through research that the powder that they used to debug them was DDT powder, which is a very harmful um, powder that is used as pesticides on crops, but is not used anymore because of discontinuation and killing of people. There were cruel punishments in these boarding schools. The children had to march everywhere. They had to learn gender-neutral jobs and roles. The girls had to sew and make clothes for the young children, as well as cook and bake. The boys had to take trade skills up, such as carpentry, wagon making, blacksmithing, tin working, and cabin making, as long as farming. The children were all given numbers and they had to memorize them. Everything that they owned had their number on it, along with this form of dehumanizing them, they also had other forms of punishment. The children would be thrown in dungeons with little bread and water for multiple days. There was no light and they would be left all alone in there until someone came to get them out. One form of punishment at many of the boarding schools was called running the gauntlet. It is where one or more of the kids would have to run down a line of other children and adults and be whipped with leather straps. If someone went easy on a person because they were friends or any had any other relation, they would have to switch places. One boy of Dr. Lashmandir's father was killed because he had a ruptured kidney after running the gauntlet. Along with these horrible punishments, there was also disgusting crime that went on there. When Dr. Lashmandir was interviewing people who had survived, she had said that every single one of them had either been raped or had witnessed a rape. Several people would give detailed encounters. The next couple pieces of information may be sensitive or sore for some, but it is necessary in part is a necessary part in letting people grasp the true horror of what has happened at these boarding schools. If you are easily upset or wish not to hear this information, please skip ahead. Thank you. So, going back to these encounters, some people had said that the boys would be taken at night and come back crying. Older boys would be molesting the younger ones. One man she interviewed stated, I was raped by the older boys. How do you tell your wife and kids that I would be screaming into a pillow? It happened over 300 times, and I still have physical problems. Another encounter was we could hear the girls crying because they were being molested at night. The last encounter that we are going to share is one of the most brutal, but the woman states, A matron shoved me naked into a shallow water trough. She took a lye soap and started to scrub my private part and saying, You are a dirty, filthy savage until I was screaming. It hurt so bad that I had to walk on my tiptoes. I was only five years old at the time. This lady was from the Chimwa boarding school. The Chimwa boarding school is one of the most extreme boarding schools. Not that the others weren't, but Dr. Lasmandir's father went there. 
So most of the information we have is because of that boarding school. When the Chimwa boys would run away and be caught, they'd be tied to the ceiling beams by their hands to where their feet weren't touching the ground. They would have to hang there during lunch so that they could be seen and shamed by the other boys. Speaking of lunch, their food and their diets were horrible. Many, if not all of the students were malnourished and many of them died. To get people to go to communion, they would offer meals there. So your options were you either went to communion or you didn't eat. And the food that they were fed was pure slop. If they refused to eat, they got whipped with leather belts with handles on it that were studded. One survivor stated, if we were to vomit from seeing the worms in our food, we were forced to eat our vomit. These hard punishments were not only for the older kids, but the younger ones too. Kids would get there at the boarding school at age of two and they were not potty trained yet. When they would wet the beds, they would have to have cruel punishments. Some would have to kneel down and have their sheets over their heads where they had went to the bathroom. Someone else testified that these boys that wet the bed would have to march to the laundry room every morning with the sheets wrapped around their heads. For the girls' sleeping arrangements, they were side-by-side -side beds with little to no moving space. The girls had to sleep on their backs with their arms folded across their chests. If they slept or moved in any other way, they got punished by having to kneel on a broomstick and face the wall and put their nose against the wall for 15 minutes. If they moved their nose at all, they would have another 15 minutes added on. And yet another encounter says that someone had peed in their sheets and had shoved the sheets into the closet where the nun had found them. No one would own up to it because of the punishment. So the nun made all of us pee into a bucket and when she when the bucket was full, she'd push our faces in it one at a time. Because there was so much of this violence and bad eating habits and spreading of germs, there was a lot of sickness in these boarding schools. The main types of illnesses were scarlet fever, measles, whooping cough, flu, tuberculosis, and trachoma, which over half of these students at all of the boarding schools suffered from this eye disease. What's worse is that the sicknesses didn't have cures at the time, and Canada has also has a record of the Pope saying, put the kids with TB, or tuberculosis, back in the classrooms. He said this because he wanted to quickly get rid of the natives without it falling back onto him or anyone else. You see, putting them in the boarding schools was cheaper to do so, that they could die there from the diseases, and it would be cheaper to do that than it would to be take a, taking a fund or a collection of people to try to kill them. Since there were so many deaths in the boarding schools, no one knows the exact number of how many kids had died. The schools had graveyards, but only for citizens of that state were able to be buried in it. The other children were sent home to die and were not because they were not useful at the boarding school anymore. Some families would write letters to have their children come home because they needed help on the farm. These graves of the people, they would be buried on top of each other and the headstones would be buried too, so no one really knew who they were. It was just another way for the Americans to deny the fact of the situation. There is more than 220 bodies buried at one school. So all of this information that we have just shared is extremely necessary for you to understand what kind of situation that Dr. Lajmadir's parents were coming from and the type of home environment that they grew up in. While Dr. Lajmadir did not attend a boarding school herself, she experienced what is called historical trauma or intergenerational trauma. This type of trauma is, relative, is a relatively new term and it deals with trauma that is passed on from generation to generation. 
even if those people did not experience the trauma firsthand. We have an interview audio from what is from when we interviewed Dr. Lajmadir, and she is allowing us to share that with you today. So this audio is about her sharing how her parents weren't close with her and how she had the intergenerational trauma. In school, my parents, you know, in boarding school, there was no hugging or saying I love you. There was severe discipline and work. You know, they worked half a day and they went to school for half a day. So my parents didn't learn parenting skills. And I didn't realize that until doing this research uh, that I looked back and, yeah, we were never hugged and never told, you know, I love you. So as she stated in the audio, she was raised with no affection. She got to a point in her life where she finally realized that. And then she decided she wanted to break the chain and try to figure out why this had happened. And so she had found the knowledge and understanding of what had happened and be able had started to help people get through it. So Dr. Lajmanir has gone through her life with many struggles because of what her parents were put through. But along with that, she has learned to heal and to forgive. We have another audio section from the interview, and this um, interview audio talks about um, how she has learned to heal and when, what she has had to forgive her parents for. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, it wasn't fun. So with, um, when you said that you had to sort of forgive your parents what were can you like go a little bit further into detail on that what did you need to forgive them for well um not so much my mom i guess my my healing journey is always with my father because of um the way we were disciplined and for his alcoholism for the verbal abuse we weren't molested or sexually molested Um, but he was verbally um pretty obscene pretty gross when he was drunk yeah not only did lock Dr. Lashmandir have to be able to heal herself. She expanded to try to heal others. She went around and started multiple organizations to help natives and those who resign in it, in the natives. Release everything, including tears and, and a way to express their hurt and their trauma. So one thing that helped her heal was dragonflies. She has a story on how the dragonfly helped her heal, and we will also play that for you as now for you now. Um. Yeah. So I know that you've mentioned, and when I was doing a little bit of research, that you're very passionate about dragonflies. So would you be able to sort of just give us a little more information on how that helped you heal? Well, that goes back to a whole different story. I have a book of poetry out called Dragonfly Dance, and in there it's a poem. But if you, maybe you don't recall, maybe you do, the, the Red Lake shooting, there was a young man that shot... I believe nine people, he shot some students, his grandparents killed them, his grandparents and maybe another adult. So the, the jingle dress, I'm a jingle dress dancer and the jingle dress is again a whole other story uh, about healing for uh, Ojibwe people. It was originally Ojibwe, now it's gone all over the United States, but I'm a jingle dress dancer. So the tribe called jingle dress dancers to come and do a healing dance for the families and for the tribe, for the Red Lake Ojibwe. So when we went into the arena, we, we gathered, we danced in a circle, and as I looked up above us, there was a bunch of dragonflies that were dancing in a circle with us above our heads. It was quite remarkable. So one of them came down and, and looked me in the eye. Honest to God, I was like face to face with this huge dragonfly with its big, huge eyes. 
and I now know that the dragonflies, I did research after that, the dragonflies have 28,000 lenses on each eye. So when they see you or when they land on you, they, they see you. There's many stories about the dragonfly for us here in Northern Country. We tell stories when there is snow upon the ground. Right now, there's a little bit of snow on the ground here. It's cold. <laughs> yeah, it's snowing here too. So it's a it's a long story. You know, it takes like four days and four nights. But it, but they're little they're little sacred little creatures, and we say they they bring the spirits of our ancestors down to visit us, or they do healing when they land on you and they move their feelers. They're cleansing you of something that is is not good within you. So they're just they're a, a lot of tribes have. Uh, stories of the dragonflies. It's a uh, uh, sacred little creature. Some tribes have them as on their shields because they're, they're like drones. You know, they can hover, go this way and that way, and they're backwards and frontwards and so on. So warriors uh, sometimes have put them on their on their shields as they they went into battle. Very powerful little creature. So it, it, that dragonfly did something to me. <laughs> also said was that she would like an apology. She believes that an apology from the church and the government would be a wonder would mean something to her. And it'd be showing that there's a step in the right direction and show improvement. An apology to her means that they would take ownership and recognize what has happened. While other natives don't agree, they think that an apology would be useless because they could never get their childhood back. Some people, including her, have turned away from Christianity because they do not want to accept what was forced on their people. So many of the people are trying to get back into their way of the tribes and their old traditions and their cultural upbringing. Many people have also tried to learn the language again and keep those traditions and ceremonies alive. It is said that 95% of people, although are Catholic, they go back and forth between church and Sundance, or a jingle dress dancer, like she is, which also helps them. Dr. Lashmadir got very interested in the history of her people. She told us that for the longest time, her parents and others would refuse to talk about their experiences, would also refuse to go back to the boarding schools, even after all these years, because of how traumatic the experiences were. Her father was the first to open up to her, and she was able to get more information out of him than she was her mother before she passed. She was, had a hard time finding her mother's records at the boarding schools. Since she had been interested in this, she has spent most of her life working on finding out as much as she can on this information. She is most likely one of the most informed people in the world on this particular topic. She has gone to most all of the known boarding schools and has gotten private tours and special access because she is doing research on the history of these boarding schools and the Native American genocide. She has gone on a long life quest to find out the history of not only her tribe, but every other tribe out there and all the information of how they were affected by the genocide. People say that the Holocaust was bad and a horrible genocide, but the Native American genocide was almost four times as bad, four times as many people killed and slaughtered. And this is why Rebecca and I wanted to bring this topic into the light and show the severity and horrifying information on what happened with the boarding schools and the Native American genocide. Yes, Cole is correct. 
And we also wanted to thank you for sticking with us through that extreme journey. And we hope that this was a factual and provided enough information on what happened all of those years ago that the government is still trying to cover up. Thank you and have a great day until next time.